This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. Batteries are key to the energy transition, but how can we overcome fears about their safety and allow for their safe reuse? Over the projects I've worked on, you know, you come into contact with battery management systems and things like that. One of the things I noticed was that it seemed to crop up again and again, the safety uh, thing with, with, with batteries. Typically, a battery management system will aim to take care of this by looking at cell voltages so you don't overcharge or um, over discharge the cell and also cell temperatures so you don't overheat the cell. How can a technology that is as old as the potter's wheel help smooth the output of wind turbines? When the power goes above 250 kilowatts we spin up the flywheel and we absorb that power for a short period of time in the flywheel. And then as, as the blades get feathered and as the wind drops away, the power might drop below 250 kilowatts. And then we are injecting energy from the flywheel system to bring, the, bring it back up again. And like, like this, we, we take out the spikes and we fill in the troughs. As we rush towards the energy transition, how can vehicle designers slash testing times bring in new products to market as fast as we need? There are car companies out there that are spending months and months, even years, testing and validating new battery designs. Uh, and the possibility is to apply machine learning and these uh, self-learning models 
to that challenge and shorten the time to market. How might biologists one day make use of cheap small particle accelerators to understand protein folding? So the short wavelength allows you to image things like protein or whatever other material. The pulse length, the fact that the pulses are so short, will also give you uh, access to dynamics of those systems. So you don't only take a photo of a protein, you could also make a movie of that protein. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. This is one of 12 episodes originally aired between the 5th and 17th of February 2024, presenting the shortlisted entries for the Engineering Matters Awards. This is the third and final episode on the shortlisted entries in the Innovation Champion category. This category aims to celebrate the work of engineers as they bring to light new technologies or methods of working. Innovation can take the form of a new product, like a piece of equipment or a software tool, a process or a way of working, or a project that combines elements in a new way. Metis Engineering is nominated for its novel method of monitoring battery health. Dummeray, formerly known as Punch Flybrid, are nominated for their work on smoothing power delivery from wind turbines. Monolith is nominated for its work in making an AI to help with automotive development. TAU Systems are nominated for their small-scale particle accelerators. Joe Holdsworth, founder and MD of Metis Engineering, started his business in motor racing. Metis Engineering was founded in 2016 and it started off just being me um, and I was working on several different projects. Uh, one was a land speed record, the other was one make race series called E-Trophy which was done using the Jaguar I-Pace and the other one was an electric airspeed record which is the m- most recent one. And in the background of all these um, I decided to try and start building my own CAN-based sensors. So Metis designs CAN design bespoke electronics, but also does off-the-shelf electronics, mainly targeting CAN-based sensors, so that's vehicle sensing. CAN, or Controller Area Network, is a system used to connect sensors and other electronics in a car or other vehicle. Joe soon realised that one key area where improved sensors were needed was in battery management. Faults with a battery cell can lead to cascading failures and vehicle fires, but an over-conservative approach to possible faults can see materials wasted. Over the projects I've worked on, you know, you come into contact with um, battery management systems and things like that. One of the things I noticed was that it seemed to crop up again and again, the safety uh, thing with, with, with batteries. Typically, a battery management system will aim to take care of this by looking at cell voltages, so you don't overcharge or um, over-discharge the cell, and also cell temperatures, so you don't overheat the cell. Joe could see flaws with both approaches. There's a problem with those two methods on their own if you're trying to look for problems with cells. So if you're looking at cell voltages, the problem is, is usually you've got a lot of cells grouped together 
in parallel. And if one of those cells is bad, all the other cells can mask the problem with it because they prop up the voltage. In the long term, you know, if you were to look at the data set of what what um, the cells were doing, you might be able to pick out an issue. In the short term, it's a lot harder to look at voltage fluctuations and detect a problem using that method. One of the other methods is to look at cell temperatures. Now that's actually quite a good method, but the problem with battery management systems is they don't offer full temperature coverage of the batteries. And that's mainly because there's just so many batteries within an electric vehicle. The plane was something like 6,000 cells. So you're never gonna be measuring 6,000 temperatures. And typically what the battery management uh, chipsets do from the supplier, they measure you know, um, every, you know, less than 50% of, of the cell temperatures, which leaves you at least, you know, half of the cells are not being measured. So it leaves you open to um, not being able to detect the cell getting hot. Joe's approach was to use additional sensors to help the accuracy of the monitoring system. Which leads us on to our product, CellGuard. So the first phase of a thermal event within a pack is typically something called cell venting. Now that's where a cell gets hot and it gets so hot that the internal pressure in the cell builds and it builds up so much that the pressure get, has to be released somehow and that's either through a pressure release port on the cell or if it's a pouch usually the pouch um, will rupture somewhere. This sensor aims to detect the first stages of a thermal runaway, which is cell venting. If you don't pick up the cell vent, what can happen is that you carry on charging or um, loading the pack, which can then lead to further increase in temperature, which can then lead to the thermal event and a thermal runaway, which then will propagate across the pack. So this sensor cell guard is to try and detect the emission of um, products um, from a cell vent, essentially. The sensor also looks at other critical things, such as relative humidity, to know if you've got water ingress in your pack. It also measures dew point. Dew point is useful to know because if you are cooling the pack and many battery management systems or many batteries are cooled, um, it will tell you the temperature at which you can cool the cells down to before you start seeing moisture forming on the cells. So basically also helps for cell conditioning. By using these proxy measures, detecting products of cell venting and dew point, CellGuard can more accurately monitor battery health in use and keep drivers safe but other sensors can be used at the end of the life of a battery or vehicle or after an accident to assess whether the battery can be reused. That can then support more sustainable battery manufacture. The other feature that we have is an impact accelerometer specifically to design, designed to look at uh, the loadings that you would see in a collision. So it's, it's meant to be there. So. The manufacturer can see whether the cell, whether the pack has been overgeed as such in a, in a collision. And the reason why that's useful is because a lot of battery packs are being written off at the moment because if a car's had a, a shunt, they don't know whether or not the pack's been overloaded or not. This aims to help um, the integrator to 
know whether it has or not and if they need to write the pack off or not. The new sensor system is now in production and being tested by potential customers. Yeah, it's a, it's a commercial off-the-shelf unit. It's in production. We've, we've got several hundred um, on our uh, client relationship management database and a large majority of those are taking samples and are testing them to integrate into future products. And while the immediate aim is to make vehicle batteries safer and more sustainable, the sensors could be used more widely. It's actually targeting anything with a battery pack. Anything with a battery pack. So that could be energy storage, Gummeray Flybrid, formerly known as Punch Flybrid, specialise in the use of flywheel technology in power applications. These can be used to reduce peak power demands on construction sites or to smooth power output from wind turbines, among other applications. The company has been shortlisted in the net zero and innovation categories for both applications. In today's episode, we'll look at the use of flywheels on wind turbines. The flywheels provide consistent power output by spinning a mass at speed. As we'll see later, on a construction site, this allows heavy equipment to draw peak power from the flywheel without overloading electrical supplies. On a wind turbine, the flywheel provides smooth power output, even when changes in wind speed cause generation to fluctuate. As Domeray's MD, Tobias Nickel explains, everything the company does is about smoothing highly dynamic power cycles. We find it quite interesting, you know, we have been doing this now, working on flywheels now for, as I say, 16 years, right? Um, um, and we still get people phone us up with applications that we had never thought about, right? And it's quite remarkable when you look at it, where all these, uh, where, where everywhere um, dynamic duty cycles, or where you can find dynamic duty cycles, right? And sometimes, new ways to make use of the flywheels can come out of the blue. Yes, so we got um, approached by a company called Ison about a problem that they were having with wind turbines in, in Northern Ireland. I'm a mechanical engineer and I, I, I looked at a lot of different applications with dynamic duty cycles, right? From Formula One cars to excavators to buses driving in city centers. I think everybody can understand that these kind of applications are dynamic, where constantly the power is higher and, and low, right? If a bus is accelerating or slowing down, if an excavator is loading a truck, it's constantly moving. It's very visual. But to be honest, I, I, I drove past a lot of wind turbines in my life and I never thought that the wind turbine is a dynamic application, right? Because when you look at the wind turbine, the speed of the plates seems to be pretty constant most of the time. And the speed is also relatively constant. But of course, power is related to speed times torque. And the torque on a wind turbine is created by the wind pressing against the plates. And of course, the wind is not constant on a wind turbine. It's gusting up and down. And so when you look at the power output um, on, a, on a wind turbine, um, the power profile is very dynamic. You know, it's, uh, it's again, more dynamic than a Formula One racing car, right? And that's maybe not so obvious in, 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 in the first place. Ison needed to supply constant power to the grid without waste. Dummeray's flywheels could enable this. In, uh, in Northern Ireland, um, the uh, network operator, um, they have specified that the wind turbines need to be able to uh, 
um, run in a certain way in terms of power factor, in terms of voltage control. And unfortunately, that is not very easy um, to achieve. Power factor is the proportion of generated power that is delivered to the grid. A power factor of zero means all of the generated power is wasted. A power factor of one means all of the power is delivered to the grid. And you would you want to run your wind turbine as close as possible to a power factor of one. And that means that the power that the wind turbine is generating at the turbine ri- arrives as much of it arrives on the network. If the power factor is poor, there's a lot of wasted um, electricity uh, that's being generated that doesn't arrive on the network. And we have developed um, with our system, we can do active um, power factor correction. And so that enables us through our electrical setup and through our inverters to take current out at certain points of time and put it back in so that we can align the phases between the peak voltage and the peak current to get that as close as possible to, to be fully aligned. And, and by, by doing that, we basically enable more of the renewable electricity that's being generated from the wind turbine to arrive on the network and, and, and helping to decarbonize the electricity network. Flywheels offer a range of benefits over batteries and applications like this. They are sustainably built, out of common materials, and can be fully dismantled at their end of life. They offer faster charging and discharging, and they don't lose efficiency over repeated charging cycles. This fast and unlimited charging and discharging made them ideal for smoothing power output for wind turbines. We do that with, with our flywheel hybrid system, right? With our flywheel system. So, so for example, there are wind turbines that um, the operator is trying to run as much as possible at 250 kilowatts. But sometimes the wind is gusting above the 250 kilowatt output um, capacity of, 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 of the wind turbine. And, and what happens in those instances is that the blades of the wind turbine gets, get feathered to, to basically bleed off, right? But, but that movement takes some time. And so you, you get these excursions above the 250 kilowatt, kilowatt limit. And, and for the grid, it's not very nice to not have um, as much predictability in, in, in the, in this asset that is producing power, right? If, if that's constantly spiking up and down, the, the grid doesn't like that so much. And so what we are doing with the flywheel is that when, when the power goes above 250 kilowatts, we spin up the flywheel and we absorb that power for a short period of time in the flywheel. And then as, as the blades get feathered and as the wind drops away, the power might drop below 250 kilowatts. And then we are injecting energy from the flywheel system to bring the, bring it back up again. And like, like this, we, we take out the spikes and we fill in the troughs. How do you model a machine? Typically, you'd start by modeling each component and then the forces acting on them. But with complex machines working in extreme conditions, that bottom-up physics-based approach becomes almost impossible. It's certainly expensive and slow. In his early research, Monolith AI founder Richard Arfield developed a new way to create these models. The company's VP of product marketing, John Pascoret, explains. Our founder uh, is a guy named Richard Offeld from Imperial College, and in some of his postdoc work at NASA, he was charged with modeling the stress and strain on, an, on a rocket 
as it goes through the launch uh, process. And the traditional approach is to use physics-based models, which basically means math, out, uh, equations, to model and simulate the stresses and strains in this case. Now, if you can imagine, that would involve creating a model for every surface, every bolt, every joint on the rocket to really try to simulate how it will react to these conditions as it's going through launch, um, which is nearly an impossible task. Instead of modeling each component, Richard proposed to combine test data with machine learning. It was at that point that the reality of using test data to build a model uh, through machine learning can really give you that, that understanding of how that design will perform through these different conditions. And so that was really the birth of the idea. And, you know, the, the primary difference is with a little bit of test data, so in this case, um, set up a number of sensors to capture real world data as the rocket's going through launch. With that data, then you can use machine learning to build a model and really understand how it's going to uh, respond to the different uh, conditions it goes through. An approach like this transforms the design, modeling and testing process. It must demonstrate it is as reliable as modeling processes that have taken decades to develop. It's, uh, you know, new technology and a new approach can take some time to uh, be adopted and really trusted. Uh, as you can imagine, the engineering process, um, you know, has gone through decades of maturity to really balance performance and safety and efficiency of the process. As the company brings this machine learning approach to the market, it is focusing on some of the toughest, most complex questions in machine design. We focus on what we call intractable physics, which are really uh, the types of products. You can think of anything that um, you drive, fly, or floats in the water. There's so many conditions um, that you can't really simulate. And so this data-driven machine learning approach allows you to get a better understanding of how this, these products perform. And that's the big change is um, finding the models that are in your data so that you can make better predictions and optimize your testing so that you save a lot of time, money, and effort in this very expensive and challenging part of kind of validating and testing a new design. The test and machine learning approach to modeling is being used for components at the heart of every electric vehicle. One example where we're getting a lot of traction, um, if you think about uh, electric vehicles and the batteries, lithium-ion batteries that are being developed for electric vehicles, there's an incredible amount of pressure on these engineers to design and validate and get to market these, these new vehicles driven by the, the battery. Um, and when you think about it, the battery is so critical because it drives the performance of the car. Without a battery and reliable testing of that battery's performance, your new car isn't going anywhere. Delays in testing slow the launch of new products. There are car companies out there that are spending months and months, even years, testing and validating new battery designs. Uh, and the 
possibility is to apply machine learning and these uh, self-learning models to that challenge and shorten the time to market. Now, what we've seen is by applying this um, new approach to modeling, you can reduce the time really measured in the number of tests that you have to perform to really exercise the design back in this case the battery you can reduce the number of tests by 30 50 even 70 percent um, compared to the traditional approach because as you're testing we're using machine learning to understand what conditions are most important to test next so we really um, through ai guided testing we can streamline and simulate that process but batteries are just a start. John believes that Monolith's machine learning could be used to speed up product development across the vehicle sector and beyond. Now zoom out, batteries is just one example that's in the news and very uh, a big issue right now. But every, almost every part of a vehicle um, has some elements that are very difficult and intractable um, to, to simulate. Um, and then it goes beyond vehicles to just about any complex nonlinear system. Um, we can help you look at that very kind of expensive and risky area of testing a new prototype and give you guidance through AI to, to do it more quickly and efficiently. Particle accelerators are some of the biggest machines ever built. They use vast tunnels, kilometres long, to accelerate particles up to the speed of light. The collisions produced have in recent decades helped unlock some of the biggest challenges in physics. But the vast size and complexity of these machines makes them inaccessible to most scientists, let alone engineers working in the private sector. This is a real challenge for those wanting to work with exotic X-rays. As Catalin Nescu, VP of Business Development at TAU Systems, explains, the technology available commercially is not very different from that developed by Wilhelm Röntgen in the 1890s. Most of the conventional X-ray sources today use X-ray tubes. Uh, basically, uh, is the same that that. Röntgen used 130 years ago. Of course, the engineering is better, we're way more efficient and so on, but the, the idea, the whole idea is exactly, is exactly the same thing. And um, so this is the conventional one. Researchers can make use of other sources of x-rays, but these are in short supply. However, of course, it, there are already other x-ray sources, but as of today, they are extremely large and extremely expensive. So think synchrotron, accelerator facilities, right? So an accelerator facility is basically a particle accelerator. One can generate short wavelength photons, soft X-ray, hard X-ray, deep UV, EUV, whatever the application needs. But the idea is to, to generate these photons, which otherwise are not easy to generate. Such facilities can do it, but they are the size of, uh, I don't know, a large village or a small town. They are very technologically complicated 
demanding. Uh, there's just a couple of them around the world, and they are, of course, extremely expensive. Uh, and you cannot transport them to wherever you, they're immobile, right? So you have to go there if you wanted to, to do anything. TAU want to make tools like this much more widely available. The technology idea would be to have a tabletop slash room size particle accelerator, laser-driven particle accelerator, to use it as a basically uh, a source to generate, I would like to say, exotic photon in the sense that one would be able to, to get to very, very short wavelengths all the way to hard X-rays um, and very short pulses, that this ultra-fast pulses, so think femtoseconds, uh, femtosecond level, so 10 to minus 15 seconds. The key technology for this room-sized accelerator is the femtosecond laser. This is currently under development at the University of Texas in Austin, where founder Bjorn Manuel Hegelik is a professor. At the same time, the company is working with Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California to build a larger machine that would be the flagship for these new accelerators. The work underway would first of all make the accelerator much easier to use than current facilities. So the first component would be the ease of use, right? But the ease of use by default brings with it way more, opens many other doors by default, right? So you don't need five physics PhDs to operate the machine. You just need somebody to push the button and, and insert the sample and take out the sample. So that, that opens it to other science uh, fields that right now do not use it or would like to use it, but they don't have access or they don't have the knowledge for it. It would also make the accelerators much cheaper, and that could allow every university to have their own accelerator, open to researchers beyond just the physics department. Our machines will not solve all the problems in the same time, right? It's not, the idea is not to fully replace the synchrotron with a room-sized machine, but to get as close as possible. We call it a tabletop, but it's actually a room-sized machine. It will be a room-sized machine, so now you need a a very small lab or, or a small building for it, but compared to what's available today is a order of magnitude better proposition. And of course, the price is also a matter. Um, right now, such a synchrotron, such a facility, just not to operate it, but to, to build it, it's on the order of billion, if not billions of that matter, pounds, euros, dollars, and, and that we need to get to at least one order of magnitude below, probably even much more than that, such that, as you said, the university can actually have one of these, maybe several at a certain point, but start by having one of these for the physics department or materials research department, right? Tailored to what they, tailored, tailored to what they need. The new femtosecond lasers will allow biologists to film proteins as they work. So the short wavelength allows you to image things like proteins or whatever other material. The pulse length, the fact that the pulses are so short, 
will also give you uh, access to dynamics of those systems. So you don't only take a photo of a protein, you could also make a movie of that protein. The charge transfer, the energy transfer, um, how the chemical reactions happen, the bond opening and closing and all that, that's the time scale relevant for such fundamental reactions. And this kind of machine will give access to that too. So a biologist would not need to go to the synchrotron once a year to just do that. They could be doing it in their lab or the, in the adjacent lab um, and actually, again, understand how the protein folds, unfolds, what's going on. Um, and that's just the protein. It could be, of course, another system as well, right? It could also be used, Catalan says, to help semiconductor developers test new models for chips as they move towards three-dimensional packing. TAU's approach is very much at the cutting edge of physics, but the work could one day give widespread access to particle accelerators, speeding up research across the academy and the private sector. The entrants we looked at today are all playing an important role in bringing innovation to the engineering industry. Their work will be celebrated at the Engineering Matters Award Ceremony in London at the end of March. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Kiri Yanathan and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing by Will North, series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and the man who judges all we do is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.